Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or short story are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of structure, scene, and language, and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm very happy that we get to hear from Alex Oline, who is going to share the first pages of her latest novel, Dual Citizens. Good morning, Alex. Hey, Michelle. Good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Alex Oline is the author of six books, including Dual Citizens, which was shortlisted for the Scotia Bank Giller Prize. Her most recent book is a collection of short stories, however. It's called We Want What We Want, and it appeared in 2021 and won a Lambda Award for Bisexual Fiction. Her work has also appeared in The New Yorker, Best American Stories, and many other places. She lives in Vancouver, where she is the director of the UBC School of Creative Writing. All right, Alex, can you give us an overview of your novel? Sure. Yeah. My novel is um, called Dual Citizens, and it is, I think of it as a love story between sisters. It's about two women named Lark and Robin. They are half sisters. They have um, the same mother and two different fathers, neither of whom is involved in their lives. And they grow up in in Montreal in a very kind of um, uh, scattershot, underprivileged kind of uh, background. And the novel follows them from childhood through adulthood, through moments when they're very close and times in their lives when they are estranged. But both of them are navigating questions of um, how to be fulfilled personally, how to succeed as an artist. Um, one of them is a pianist, the other one is a filmmaker. And it's really about uh, making your way in the world, being free of social and personal expectations to be the person that you want, and also building a family uh, of choice, not necessarily like the family that you grew up with, but how do you make the family that you need to have as an adult? Fantastic. Okay, let's hear these pages. Okay. The story of Scotty's life, which is, of course, the story of my life, too, begins with my sister, Robin. It's strange how little we talk about it now. Of the three of us, I'm the only one who dwells on our history, probably because I'm the one who chose and formed it. If I bring up that day in the Laurentians, Robin says she doesn't remember much about it. I find this impossible to imagine. For me, the opposite is true, with every detail lodged unwaveringly in my memory, recorded in detail, like a film I can replay at any time. It goes like this, a sunny day in June, the leafy heat of summer at odds with my frozen terror as I stood fixed to the ground, the air thick and still as a wall against Robin's ragged breath, and the wolf my sister had named Catherine inspecting us both with her yellow eyes. Robin was 38 weeks pregnant at the time and she just irritably informed me that pregnancy lasted 10 months, not nine. She was angry about this as if there'd been a conspiracy to keep her misinformed. She was angry in general because she was hot and uncomfortable and couldn't sleep. We were walking down a trail behind her house that led to a canopy of pine trees, hoping the air would be cooler there. Walking was all Robin wanted to do, although she complained about this too. Her hips hurt, her knees hurt, her ribs hurt. Complaining wasn't typical of my sister who was stoically, even savagely independent, and it worried me. We stopped every few steps so she could catch her breath, and when we did, I watched her stroke her belly. She wasn't in other ways tender toward the baby inside her or herself. She frowned. What are you doing? Nothing. You're touching yourself, 
she said. I hadn't realized until then that I was imitating her, making myself a mirror. My palm was against my own stomach, although there was nothing to stroke. I flushed with embarrassment, and my sister gave her harsh bark of a laugh. It's okay, she said. I get it. But how could she get it? She didn't live in my body any more than I could live in hers. We stood body to body, sister to sister, across an impossible divide. To change the subject, I began telling her about a cache of old films that had been discovered in a permafrost landfill beneath an ice rink in Dawson City, Yukon. Dating from the early 20th centuries, the films had belonged to a movie house. Back in those days, I said, movies traveled from California to cities like Calgary and Vancouver before heading to Whitehorse and eventually reaching the mining community in Dawson City, at which point it made no sense to ship them back to their point of origin. So they accumulated there an accidental archive. The films were made of cellulose nitrate, the material known to disintegrate, melt, even spontaneously combust. If they hadn't been buried below the rink, nestled alongside chicken wire and dirt and bits of wooden debris, they might have burned the whole town down. Movies used to explode, Robin said. I nodded. I told her how the movie house went out of business and dumped the films, which were found decades later by a backhoe operator clearing the land for a new recreation center. The story fascinated me with its unlikely combination of flammable film and icy bedrock, of preservation by neglect, how a town had maintained its history by forgetting it. Most silent films of that era have been lost to fire or decay, but abandonment saved these ones. As for my sister, she'd heard me go on about this kind of trivia for years. I was a collector of arcane information, especially anything relating to film, and I suppose she must have been used to it. She was listening now, so quietly it took me longer than it should have to notice something was wrong. Her eyes were trained on a point behind my head. Look, she said. We saw the wolf trot out of the forest like a lost dog looking for its home. From her strange gait, one leg hobbled, we knew it was Catherine. Her gray-brown fur looked knotted and flat, her body narrow-hipped and sinewy. It was possible, we thought later, that she was searching for her pack. To me, it hardly matters. Her motives aren't my concern. What I remember is her graceless stagger and how quickly she moved despite it. How when she bore down on us so close that I could see her eyes, I couldn't tell whether she recognized us, whether the bond Robin had nurtured with her was sturdy or significant or the slightest bit present in her mind. What happened next was my fault. The wolf ran toward Robin as if to jump on her and I pulled my sister sharply to the side, scared for both her and the baby. Robin wrestled against me, wanting to greet Catherine, I guess, or at least to see her close up. A fit of vertigo washed over me then, the sky and earth changing places, everything solid, jellied, and spun. I clung to whatever I could grasp as my vision hazed, and inside my ears was the crash and roll of some invisible ocean. I think I grabbed Robin's shoulder, but it might have been her leg. That's how disoriented I was. In the push and pull between us, Robin lost her balance, stumbled, and fell. The wolf kept going, running past us as if we didn't even exist. Slowly, my eyes cleared and the ground assembled itself beneath me. Vertigo passing is like an earthquake in reverse. Pieces knit themselves back together, the world unshutters and comes to rest. Next to me, Robin moaned a terrible keening sound. Are you all right? She sa I said. She didn't answer. 
Her face was an ashy color I'd never seen before, and she pressed a hand to her belly again, the gesture not gentle this time. I cradled my sister's head in my lap, but she seemed hardly to notice my presence, much less be eased by it. Her body was hot to my touch, her hair sticking wetly to my hand. Then we heard the rest of the pack begin to vocalize in rolling harmonics, whether in greeting to Catherine or for some other reason. Their silvery howls rose and fell, rose and fell. I thought it was spooky, but Robin's face relaxed and she opened her eyes. What I found wild, she found a comfort, and that had always been a difference between us. Where's Catherine? she said. I told her I didn't know. The wolf had gone. My sister struggled to sit up and I could see she was hurting, but there was no stopping her from standing. There had never been any stopping Robin from whatever she wanted to do. She got to her feet, though her knees buckled once and she had to brace herself against me as I tried and failed to coax her back to the house. Only my sister would have ignored going into labor in order to look for a wolf. Only my sister would have asked, through the pain, where did she go? Wonderful. Absolutely beautiful. Okay. Were these always your first pages? No, they weren't. So these were written... Um, pretty far along into the drafting uh, process of the, the novel. Uh, after this is the prologue and mm -hmm. they're adults in this time. And then um, the next section of the novel goes into them as children growing up in Montreal. So that was where I had originally started in uh, a kind of finished draft, actually an earlier version. It started with them as young women in college. I tried lots of different beginnings and it was uh, fairly late in the day when I decided that this opening uh, with its uh, kind of mystery around the wolf and the danger and Robin's pregnancy was where I wanted the story of the book to begin. Absolutely. So you had, because you had a lot of choices of where to begin because it covers quite a lot of time, the novel. Yeah, exactly. And I think that what I realized was that um, uh, chronology wasn't the most important thing, right? The book does start with them as children and follows them all the way into their, in their mid to late thirties by the time the book ends. And what was important for me when I thought about the best place to begin in this prologue was to try to do something to gesture towards the most important themes of the book, which had to do with um, connection, but also differences between these two women. The book is very much preoccupied with questions of motherhood and then questions of like, what's going to happen <laughs> to um to um them as they go into like the wild territory of motherhood right and you had to write the full in order to find that so yeah wonderful so the prologue begins the story of scotty's life which is of course the story of my life too begins with my sister robin so we have the sense of beginning already mm -hmm. we have a sense of a reason of why we're watching here and mm -hmm. why it's important um and we're in present tense um, do you use present tense throughout the novel and then also go into past tense, moving back and forth or? Um, it actually, um, it, it, it starts only those first few sections are in, um, are in present and then everything after that is in the past tense. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. did you always use first person? In some of the earlier versions, I had tried writing it in third, and it just felt very distanced from the characters to me. And so 
finding the first person voice of Lark, who's the older sister, who's narrating this section. She's kind of the more cautious sister. Robin is the more kind of wild and adventurous one. That was where things really clicked for me and realizing that the whole book was going to be Lark kind of telling the story of their lives to themselves. And you don't find out actually until the end of the book, like who Scotty is and why that matters. Um, so it takes the whole rest of the book to kind of circle you back to that same moment. That's great. So you launched that question right away. And I do mm -hmm. think there are certain characters for whom it's just writing them in third person is that much harder. Yeah. Um, because because they they might be more repressed, they might they, they might just hide from us more because you've worked in both forms, right? And all your books. Yeah, I've worked in both. And I think I do have a tendency to write characters who are sort of emotionally withholding or who struggle to connect with other people. And I think in this case, um, adding the third person to that created like a double layer of distancing because like the third person narration felt distant, at least the way that I was doing it. So when I could at least put it in the first person, uh, even though Lark, who is the narrator, often struggles to connect with other people, you at least have access to her interiority. And I felt like I was able to make that struggle more visible and hopefully more emotionally connective to the reader. Right. Yeah, I've had that issue too, particularly when I'm working with um, his, my historical Midwestern characters. And <laughs> I had, there's no way I can write them in third person because they're so... Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I love how this moves. Again, you play with time in telling us about that wolf early on. And mm -hmm. again, allowing us to know that something of importance is going to happen here. And we also get a lot about Robin with the introduction of the of the wolf and and of Lark as well. Um, and mm -hmm. the wolf, my sister had named Catherine, inspecting us with her yellow eyes. So we could already tell here. Well, we know that Lark is afraid, um, mm -hmm. frozen terror, mm -hmm. um, and that Robin obviously is not. And the fact that she would name a wolf Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> is just just tells us a lot about a lot about robin that's not a name that we would normally associate with a wolf Hate yeah me. i don't know <laughs> but also this combination so the combination of danger and vulnerability because she's pregnant mm -hmm. um, is a wonderful way to begin and so but then otherwise the beginning of it is rather quiet so you need yeah. that wolf. you need that yeah wolf. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a hopefully more of a hook, you know, than just having them there like talking, right? And uh, Lark is not a character who's going to seek out danger. She's someone who's like, she's very much in her own head. She's there talking about the history of silent film, which is sort of an important key to like who she becomes later in in the book. But I I did feel like the whole book, you know, is pretty, is pretty quiet. So trying to think of an opening that could make the reader sit up and pay attention and want to know like, how do these women grow into people who would be you know attacked or approached by a wolf in the Laurentians and why like the mystery hopefully has to do with like Robin's reaction what yes. happens in someone's childhood that um, makes them feel this kind of comfort or connection a kind of almost um uh I'm gonna say superhuman meaning going beyond the human like a connection between her and the animal and how does that come to be how does Robin come to be this person that's hopefully one of the mysteries that the opening is setting up for the reader 
For me, absolutely. I'm, I'm completely um, uh, mesmerized by Robin. I think I just want to get to know her more and get to know what's going on with her. So and and so when we normally begin, when we are presented with a character or uh, multiple characters at the beginning of the novel and their relationships, whatever we get of them in scene is what we normally think is their typical self. Mm. Um, and that's why the choice of that early scene is so important. And we usually don't even need to be told, okay, this is the way they always are. This is the way their relationship always is. It's, it's what the reader assumes because we're grasping at straws for information as we begin the novel. You, however, have Robin complaining. And so you <laughs> need the line, complaining wasn't typical of my sister who was stoically, even savagely independent and it worried me, which I think works well because we also know that we're beginning at a point when Robin is changed or, or different. Yeah, um, and hopefully there are kind of notes of, if not ominousness, concern around the pregnancy and the idea that potentially things could not be smooth sailing, even if that just relates to Robin's own kind of psychological or emotional orientation towards her own pregnancy. I wanted readers to pick up on something, like there's something there around the pregnancy. What are they doing together? It's just them and the wolf. There's nobody else, no other family members, no other partners. That kind of um, narrow tunnel vision on the two of them with its notes of um, undercurrents of potential distress or, or confusion or darkness. That was very much the tone that I wanted to set in the opening. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and then you get this wonderful, we get a sense of the relationship and of their closeness when Robin frowns at Lark and says, what are you doing? And <laughs> because Lark is stroking her belly. And that create that necessitates a certain intimacy that mm -hmm. you willing to call someone out about that um and she says nothing you're touching yourself so there's a comedy there too yeah however you're also so you're showing and i i think you've talked about this already this combination of closeness and intimacy with also the feeling of separation because even though i felt that that showed closeness to it i think lark is so used to the kind of banter between them Mm -hmm. she doesn't feel that closeness and she says she didn't live in my body any more than I could live in hers we stood body to body sister to sister across an impossible divide that's mm -hmm. sad yeah yeah, it is sad. And, and it hopefully indicates that the pregnancy is troublesome for Lark as well, for reasons that you won't find out until much later. But um, wow. as you pointed out, it's like much better in the opening to try to show that to the reader through gesture, through like, what is she doing? Like, why is she stroking her own stomach? Like, is it that she wants to be Robin? Is it a gesture of like longing? Is it something affectionate? Is it something sad? You know, I, I tried not to explain it. I tried to just show that there was something going on there for her as well. And it does wind up being like a related to a, a crucial plot strand later in the book, as you find out later um, how Robin came to be pregnant and what it means for Lark. So I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is about showing people um, as they are. And I think a, a, a big mistake that people make when they're first trying to find their way into a novel is that they focus on the habitual. Like you're trying to get you to know your character. So you're showing like the ongoing kind of status quo situation. Here's their usual day to day. Here's what their family life is. Here's what their work life is. Here's the you know place in which they live. But like, that's actually not necessarily what the reader first needs to know. Like the reader first needs to know the tipping point or the disruption or the ripple of unease that threads through that. And it's sort of more important. We can pick up on what's habitual or routine or ongoing for the characters later. 
Right, right. And we know here that we're on the crux of change. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that, that kind of danger and vulnerability and movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get Lark going on and on about the trivia. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we're like, what about the wolf? Damn it. What about the wolf? And she's going yeah. on. Even though the trivia is in of itself rather interesting, you know, that mm -hmm. a whole town could burn down right. um, and that the sisters used to this kind of listening to it, kind of not. And as you said, it's it's important for setting up who Lark is. And this is important later. Mm -hmm. um, then the wolf comes. Um, and what's interesting is the description of the wolf. We saw the wolf trot out of the forest like a lost dog looking for its home. From her strange gait, one leg hobbled. We knew it was Catherine. Her gray-brown fur looked knotted and flat, her body narrow-hipped and sinewy, sinewy. And at first I thought, oh, the, this is not a dangerous wolf. Um, you know, this is, this is a, a, a hobbled wolf. Um, this is not like the wolf that Lark saw immediately, though, of course, a starving wolf can be quite quite dangerous right <laughs> that they are and what you do then you center that line what happens next was my fault mm -hmm. its own paragraph its own line did you always have that when you had written these pages yeah right away I just uh, it's a it's as close to like a dramatic you know pause in the camera as I get as a writer but it seemed important to um really set up the moment as like something cinematic is about to happen right what happened next was my fault so it's really trying to make the reader like using white space on the page to try to make the reader like sit up and pay attention and also pay attention to how much ownership Lark is taking of the situation which is you know the kind of character that she is so hopefully it's working on more than one level on a narrative level but also on a level of characterization too. Yeah, no, I think it absolutely is. And it's it's important to think about using that white space to, to kind of wake the reader up or to, mm -hmm. to get them to sit up and pay attention. This happens even in, in when we speak. If you have a pause, people will suddenly pay attention to it. And so that yeah. pause can happen on the page. So be aware of that when you're arranging your sentences on the page. This is not stuff just of poetry. Uh, this right. is stuff of, of prose as well. And then what I thought is interesting is, so you've set up an expectation that the wolf is the danger, mm -hmm. but the wolf is not the danger. And so you break that expectation, which I think is very important because if you simply had followed through with that expectation, I tell my students, they, they want to, um, if you set up a sort of um, foreboding or forewarning of something to happen, when that thing actually happens, you want to have a kind of slant rhyme, mm -hmm. how it an answers the first warning sign, because if it, if it, if it's, if it's a pure rhyme, if it happens exactly the way we expect it, then there's no interest. There's actually a, a lack of interest. It kind of falls apart on us. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, she's the one, she gets so worried about the wolf that she actually pulls her sister to the ground. Yeah, it's her own body that turns out to be the problem, not this kind of wild animal body. And they wind up like all together in this sort of tangle of limbs. And she doesn't even know like where each of their bodies are in space. And they tried to contrast, like I think a lot about modulation also in terms of prose as something that helps keep the reader engaged. And so the writing itself goes from that simple sentence with all the white space around it to uh, some kind of long ropey sentences that are more breathless that try to convey her disorientation. I wanted the feeling of like a wave crashing over her when this is all happening, her complete disorientation. 
Right. Absolutely. And, and I just, there's, there's some things in here that even when the vertigo passing is like an earthquake in reverse, um, even the earlier inside my ears was the crash and roll of some invisible ocean. I mean, it's just wonder to, wonderful to get inside that interiority, but interiority about the body, mm-hmm. um, I think works extremely well. And then at the end, only my sister would have ignored going into labor in order to look for a wolf. Only my sister would have asked through pain, where did she go? just impeccable and we immediately want to move forward and that she can have multiple meanings I'm assuming as well right um do you have you used prologues before I'm forgetting in your other novels no I haven't this was the first time and I think it really did come down to the fact that I had this retrospective narration that covered such a huge expanse of time in the lives of the characters from childhood to adulthood so I really need to to think about how to shape it and how to set up the themes of the book um, so that when the reader does go back to childhood they're reading through a particular lens and that they would always I hope have that question where did she go with its multiple meetings, as you point out, like that should be lingering in the back of their mind. So they're continually reading to find that out. I, I hoped it would create more kind of propulsion, propulsive momentum through the rest of the book. Yeah. And then so we don't have your first chapter here, but how do you transition into the first chapter? Yeah, then it goes back to it has like a new section break and it's labeled instead of childhood, there's a uh, instead of prologue, there's a label that says childhood and then a first chapter that kind of goes back in time to their growing up. Um, but you do quickly learn that Robin as a child was obsessed with uh, wild animals, including wolves for a period of time. She's like eating her food off the floor <laughs> like a dog. She's obsessed with like children who like are adopted by by wolves or other wild animals and live live in the wilderness for a while. So it's, I tried to create strands of connection while also like sort of pushing it along to the next um, thing that the book is about, yeah, which is about their own mother. Incredible character. Um, okay. And that, that, that sets up perfectly because she's pregnant. Um, now I've also had students that have, have worked with the reminiscent narrator and have found it difficult because they don't know how often do I allow the reminiscent narrator to break into the story. Because it can happen too often and takes us out of the story or out of the fictional dream, as Gardner would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, and I and I tell them, well, there's no real, you know, there's there's no real code for this to use. Look at other writers that do this sort of thing, writers that you like, what what kind of works for you and then find a sense of, of following the character's own psyche as they tell the story when it would make sense for them to think of themselves and draw back into their own life versus the past. But how did you negotiate that? Yeah, I think that's excellent advice that you give people. And I think I also... Um try to use it in ways that would um, increase drama and mystery in the book that would open up the questions of the book to something bigger rather than using it to like close it down or just provide information. Um, So I would try to use it for moments to kind of trouble the readers and even the characters understanding of what was happening in the scene. Like years, years later, I would question what, you know, I was seeing, or I would learn to see it differently. That just, you know, creates a different level of hopefully tension and mystery, as opposed to now I know what was really going on, which is a more like closing down use of a retrospective narration. So creating trouble instead of calming trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
Alex, I'm going to have to let you go because I need to get these folks back to the writing desk. Um, everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find the full range of our podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast because that makes us look really, really popular and cool and other listeners can find us then okay alex one more question for you what advice would you give to authors about their own first pages i would say think of your novel as a map of the world it contains a certain um, space it covers a certain amount of territory um it could be like many years it could be you know a whole city it could be something much more confined so think about that and then think of the opening pages as the legend at the very bottom of the map, it's just enough of a key that's going to teach the reader how to um, engage with the whole map of the world. Do they need to be thinking in terms of generations or do they need to be just thinking in terms of one character looking back at a specific moment in time? All they need is that little key to get started. That's that's wonderful. I love that. Okay, let's uh, create the, your map of the world, everyone, and get your key. Uh, thank you so much, Alice, for joining us. And I hope everyone is able to grab up this novel. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here at all.